Well, it's been more than five months now since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and those widespread sanctions that followed. And at that time, there was ample warning that the moves would not deal a quick and deadly blow to the Russian economy, that it would take time. But there has been much made of late of just how resilient the Russian economy seems to be. Just yesterday, the International Monetary Fund reported that Russia's economy is holding up better than expected in its world economic outlook. Outlook, rather. The IMF slashed growth forecasts for almost every country around the world, but upgraded Russia's economic forecast, uh, with the economy still contracting, but by 5%, or 6%, rather, an improvement over their April forecast of an 8.5% contraction. It's still a relatively big contraction. That's not a good thing for your economy. But they say it's holding out better. Why? Uh, crude oil and non-energy exports have been holding up better, they say. In addition, domestic demand is also showing some resilience thanks to the containment of the effect of the sanctions on the domestic financial sector and a lower than anticipated weakening of the labor market, said the IMF. Others, though, disagree, arguing that far from being ineffective or disappointing, international sanctions and voluntary business retreats have exerted a devastating effect over Russia's economy. So how did they come to that conclusion? Well, joining me now are Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, the Lester Crown Professor in Management Practice and a Senior Associate Dean at the Yale School of Management, and Stephen Tien, who's Director of Research at the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute. They are authors of a report called, Actually, the Russian Economy is Imploding, Nine Myths About the Effects of Sanctions and Business Retreats Debunked. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks. We're honored to join you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ben. So just from the get-go, clearly this uh, this whole a process began with an assumption that something wasn't being reported correctly out there, but what's happened to the Russian economy given these sanctions? What was your hypothesis going in and what were you trying to figure out? Well, we got involved back at the end of February on this particular topic. I've been looking at corporate social impact issues uh, for know, 40 some years. Uh, shouldn't admit that, but looking at whether or not it's on voting rights or uh, yeah, immigration reform issues, gun safety issues, uh, a whole host of topics, of, of course, in the U.S. on abortion decisions and company responses and things is in this matter, uh, we saw companies act and I was playing catch up is that there were some first movers that were shocking to us, professional service firms, oil uh, industry companies, uh, and, and uh, uh, I guess um, a, a third a third unlikely cluster was uh, big tech. A big tech, big oil, and professional services would usually jump off a cliff rather than be on the leading edge of, of social justice issues. So I was intrigued, and I started to talk with some of the CEOs on those fronts, and then there were a wash of pretenders that came in. So Steve and I got involved in trying to separate out the metrics who was genuinely pulling out of Russia and who was just making a lot of noise atmospherics with, with effective smokescreen from PR uh, professionals. And in the process of doing so, the list grew from the initial dozen to now 1,300. Uh, but then it's had a profound impact that we've been measuring the impact on the Russian economy. We started to see this groundswell of skepticism growing in Western media, suggesting, oh, no, maybe the savvy, canny, master tactician smirking uh, uh, President Putin is going to prevail and that uh, and using statistics in the last few weeks that he's manufactured and promoted. And we thought we should we should take this on. And uh, that's that's how we got involved. So, Stephen, I, I gather from the from the outset, one of the issues here was how reliable were Russia's economic data coming out? How how reliably could they be judged? Could the impact of these sanctions uh, be judged? What did you find there? 
Ben, this is such an important question because all the studies that are out there giving these sanguine forecasts about how great the Russian economy and how resilient Russia is supposedly holding up in the face of sanctions are based off statistics released by the Kremlin itself. And there's a few problems with this. Number one, the Kremlin's become increasingly more selective about which statistics they're actually releasing. In short, they're cherry-picking. They're, they're putting out the good stats and holding back the bad stats. If you look at the number of stats that they released before the invasion and after the invasion, they're holding back on all trade data, all export data, all import data. They're holding back on currency flows. They're, they're holding back on fiscal information and monetary information. Basically, everything that you need to know to be able to come up with an understanding of how their economy is actually doing, they're holding back on. And they're selectively releasing these cherry-picked statistics, which show the Kremlin in the best possible light. Statistics like uh, the exchange rate, which is nonsense, and we can get into that later on. Statistics like uh, you know, uh, the price of oil, which isn't that great anyways, and we can talk about that too. But, but these are cherry-picked statistics, which are misleading, and which don't actually reflect the genuine picture of what's going on in the Russian economy. You also have a lot of challenges regarding data integrity. Even the numbers that are put out, we have serious questions about them. You look at the level of political interference that has taken place at the, uh, it's an agency called Rostad. It's the Federal Statistics Service in Russia, which is essentially the agency responsible for all collecting all of this data in Russia. And you look at the level of political interference. Putin's put one of his cronies, the deputy minister uh, in his government uh, is now in charge of Rostad instead of uh, the career professionals it used to be. And obviously it, it, you can draw the inference there of what's going on. So, so these are some of the questions that we have regarding these statistics. You did look at some of the myths that are, that are out there, and I know you list those myths in this uh, current article in Foreign Policy, nine in all. I, I thought it would be easy to divide them into three separate areas. One was the idea of diversification, specifically energy diversification, um, and this idea that they can easily pivot to other markets, whether it be India, China, and pivot away from the European Union, where a vast majority of their exports go now. Uh, and you found that's just not, just can't be done. Well, you know, it is it is very hard. We have seen that uh, their belief that somehow they uh, they hold the upper hand in on energy is dramatically uh, overstated. There are uh, certainly uh, uh, Europe is very dependent on Russia for about uh, of maybe 40 some 42 percent of their of their imports and energy. Russia, though, is overwhelmingly dependent on Europe to send that oil and gas there for for their the revenues to fuel Putin's war machine. It's like about 80, 86 percent um, uh, of dependence. When you take a look at maybe it's 83 percent of dependence. What you know, that's quite an imbalance. And they really can't sell it to anybody else. The media was regularly confused, thinking that somehow oh, we could uh, redirect the gas uh, to perhaps oh, uh, from Russia to uh, selling to Europe, to redirect it to China or redirect it uh, to India. They can't. This is this is not liquefied gas. It has to go through gas pipelines, and there are basically no pipelines. There's one pipeline which uh, with maybe a fraction, sixteen point five cubic metrics of. Uh, of, of, of gas going through there as opposed to the 170 uh, billion uh, uh, cubic metrics uh, meters that were going through uh, in, in the, uh, the pipelines to Europe. Uh, and that's where, that's where they need to send it. They can't sell it elsewhere. And similarly with oil, it's, it's not that as fungible as people think. 
just to uh, uh, to deal with the price of oil. Russia can't just do a simple pivot. Is uh, China and India are hardly their best friends. They've been taking advantage of the fact that if the West West can't buy this oil, then they can go for steep discounts at thirty five dollars a barrel discounts. It never it's never had a dip as much as five dollars, but they're getting these huge discounts now. And and meanwhile, their coffers are filled, their tanks are filled. India can't use any more uh, Russian oil, and if they could. It takes like 35, uh, 40 days to get it to these places where it's only two days to get it to, to Russia, to, from Russia to Europe. So it's, it's not easy to do that kind, of, um, that kind of substitution of customers. It's just not going to happen. Meanwhile, Europe uh, can develop alternative sourcing. They've got possibilities that you're know, looking into of a couple of months, maybe as much as six months to develop liquid national gas liquid natural, natural gas uh, facilities to be able to bring in gas from elsewhere. Europe has more options. Europe is less dependent. Uh, so, you know, that's some of what's going on there. And uh, uh, it, it is remarkable. And China is also uh, on another front and been not there to, to fill in on substitute imports that they need for parts, for equipment and things like that. That's, that's just not happening. In fact, the China, the China trade, shockingly, is actually down. I'm speaking with Jeff- Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. He's the Lester Crown Professor in Management Practice and a Senior Associate Dean at the Yale School of Management. And Stephen Tian, he's the Director of Research at the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute. We're talking about an article they've just co-authored called Actually, the Russian Economy is Imploding. Uh, they've looked at a whole bunch of different metrics to try to figure out what exactly is happening inside that country since its invasion of Ukraine and the imposition of severe sanctions. Um, and uh, what they find is that in fact, Russia's in trouble, deep trouble, uh, and simply trying to uh, cherry pick some data out there um, to show otherwise. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about one of the biggest uh, topics of conversation these days. What's happening inside the country? You've had all these major multinationals leave. They're so reliant on foreign expertise for their energy industries and for just about everything else. Uh, What's happening inside the country and what must be done now? Because clearly both experts argue that there is more room here for further sanctions. We'll be back with that. My guests this half hour are Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. He's the Lester Crown Professor in Management Practice and a Senior Associate Dean at the Yale School of Management. And Stephen Tian, Director of Research at the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute. We're talking about their recent article in Foreign Policy called Actually, the Russian Economy is Imploding. Stephen, inside the country, that's been a huge um, topic of conversation because we see you know, the new McDonald's that's there. They don't have potatoes, obviously. We see all these things, all these attempts to try to replace what's been lost. But what's been lost in many ways seems irreplaceable. 1,300 companies, uh, you were saying earlier. Ben, I couldn't have put it any better myself. If you read Putin's speeches... He talks, uh, he brags with this bravado about how Russia can be a self-sustaining economy, how they don't need the West, how they're able to use import substitution to develop domestically all the manufacturing and high technology expertise that they'll ever need. That's just not true. Ben, this is not the Russia of the Soviet Union 70 years ago. This is Russia that is a part of the global economy in the 21st century. And you look at imports, for all the focus that have been in Russia as a commodity exporter, imports are crucial to the Russian economy. As you pointed out, it represents 20% of GDP, and they don't have the domestic manufacturing capacity of semiconductors and you know uh, smartphones, other uh, high technology. They need the rest. They need the rest of the world. And you look at what's going on. Even China, you've seen 
Imports from China plummet by over 50% from the start of the invasion. China does 10 times more trade with the United States than they do with Russia. They are much more concerned about running afoul of U.S. sanctions than they are of losing whatever marginal position they have in the Russian market. It's no more than 1% to 2% of GDP for all of these global multinational corporations. It's not even close. So when you get back to the business retreat, not only do you have one, one over a thousand companies having pulled out representing 12% of Russian's workforce, around 5 million workers, uh, that's 40% of GDP. You also have the devastation that's wrought internally. You have the goods of so many items that are reliant on, 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 on international supply chains soaring by 60%. Uh, you have Russian domestic manufacturers scrambling or trying to cannibalize parts from their existing fleets to service aircraft and to make cars. You look at cars that are being sold without safety locks, without, without, uh, uh, without safety brakes, without uh, airbags. This is not the signs of an economy that is supposedly resilient under the weight of sanctions. These are all the signs of an economy that's falling apart at the seams. And, and Ben, if you, you could take any, if you yeah. take any more bludgeoning, I would join in on that, is to, is to add there are other, these other indicators in terms of quality of life with a soaring percent, a soaring 60% or more inflation. That, that's a lot worse than the seven or 8% people are wringing their hands around here. 60% is a conservative estimate for their inflation because they can't get these rare parts that Stephen's talking about, yeah. whether or not it's for your, your iPhone or your automobile. But also- and, ben, and ben, if I can just drop in, it's not just 60% inflation. You're seeing sales grind to almost a complete halt in so many crucial sectors. You look yeah, at- Yeah, foreign cars, 95% from cars, yeah. that's most of their cars, 95% yeah. fallen. And, and workforce- we of, of those a thousand plus companies that we've tracked that have pulled out of Russia, that accounts for somewhere around 15 percent or so of Russia's workforce conservatively directly. But then all the jobs that re relate to that, that's three times that. So we're looking at well more than 40 percent of the population looking at unemployment. Even the mayor of Moscow admitted the hundreds of thousands of people out of work. And if, he, if he's admitting that, you know, it's quite a bit more. Uh, so this is uh, this in Moscow alone. So th these are quite telltale times, uh, signs. We have data from inside Russia of around 700,000 top professionals, IT experts and others who have fled the country. That's really, really draining That's a, a lot of capital. So, so I guess I only have a few minutes left, but this begs the question, how long can they keep up the facade if it is indeed a facade? And what should the West be doing? Well, you know, a lot of things depend on, of course, how much they keep spending on the war as they're drawing in deficits, as Stephen has revealed, they're actually drawing down deficits. Their capital reserves are not what they purport. They have about 600 billion only in capital reserves and 300 of that is, is frozen by the West. It's great for the West, what they have frozen, to seize that and reallocate that to the rebuilding of Ukraine. And then what the West should do is also increase sanctions. There's a, a great group that works very closely with uh, President Zelensky from the Kiev School of Economics that has studied the additional sanctions on high-profile individual Russians now that need to come down, which are which are very important, and uh, which you know going after oligarchs and other top influential people in the government that would have a big impact. Uh, is basically what we're looking at here has been is an alternative uh, to, uh, to uh, going into open warfare with Russia ourselves from the West is hopefully better than that is to do what brought down Nikolai Ceausescu uh, in Romania or Eric Honecker in East Germany or Jaroszelski in Poland or things is to have a breakdown of civil society it would be much better to have a near bloodless 
uh, uh, change of leadership there. And that's what happens if you stall out civil society by these moves. And Ben, it's that breakdown of civil society that's so much more important than the narrow question of uh, when will Russia run out of cash. The simple answer to that is it depends on so many factors. We've shown in our paper that the Russian fiscal position is not nearly as strong as people say it is, with running budget deficits equivalent to 2% of GDP, with energy prices being as high as they are right now. Not great. Drawing down $75 billion in foreign exchange reserves after the invasion began alone. Not great. But ultimately, more important than, than the supposed you know, necessity of bankrupting Russia, which is a false premise, is what Jeff said. It's how much pain can the Russian economy genuinely tolerate? What is the threshold there? Jeffrey Sonnenfeld and Stephen Tian, thank you so much for your time tonight. Fascinating paper that you've written and uh, fascinating conclusions that you've come to. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks, Ben.